Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I have a message this morning, and I hope and pray that you are all aware of this, but I'm alive and so are you. How awesome is that? How awesome is it that we have life itself? Now, certainly we praise the Lord with the very breath that he has given us this morning. We recognize the physical life that we have. But when we talk about life, we also talk about it in the context of the spiritual. Because we know not only, for those of us who have believed, not only do we have the physical life right now, but we have spiritual life. We have eternal life. And we need to demonstrate that life every day in who we are. I want to share a passage with you this morning where Paul basically says, I'm alive. How that life was secured through death and how that life somehow motivates us on to service. I want you to hear what Paul says as he writes to these Romans again. He's spoken to them about faith. He has spoken to them about grace. He's recognized their need and he's also recognized how the Savior himself, Jesus Christ, provided for that need. He has recognized that grace itself has reigned and continued to reign in the hearts and the lives of the Roman believers. This is what he says to them as he continues this discussion, as he continues to speak to them, beginning in verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So here's Paul, again, writing to a group of individuals that he, who he's already laid the case out of how sinful that we were, how we were hostile toward the God of heaven, and yet Christ Jesus intervened. And because of his grace, the unmerited favor of God himself, we had come to recognize what salvation was. Now, Paul was writing to them. He's talking to them about faith and grace. And he asked these rhetorical questions as chapter 6 begins. Notice the first one he asked is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You'll see it later on in this passage. And that is this idea that there is so much grace. I mean, God has been so gracious to us. He has shown his favor to us. Could we all agree this morning that God has been gracious to us? Amen. Folks, I hear you up in the gathering. I heard these folks down here. They're alive this morning. 
But we can all agree that God has been gracious to us, especially as we think about how he has transformed us from death to life. But listen to what Paul says. Does that mean that we continue on in our sin? And does it mean, if you were to use this argument here, this logical argument, that the more you sin, the more you sin, the greater the grace. And thus, we ought to sin more so we'll see more grace in our lives. Paul says that is ridiculous. As a matter of fact, even though you're not to answer rhetorical questions, he answers his own. He says, certainly not. He says, you don't just continue to sin. You don't just continue to do those things you used to do in order to get more grace. It does not make sense in your life nor in mine. Now, some of us live by the motto, it is better to get forgiveness than permission. Some of you have been there in life. Your children probably live by it, but remember, they learn from good examples. Sometimes it's better, we think, just to get forgiveness than permission. In other words, we just go ahead and we do our thing, and we know that forgiveness is there. Now listen, I believe the blood of Christ covers all of our sins. Once we come to Christ, I believe His blood covers all of our sins. It covers the sins I've, I've done in the past, I've committed there, the sins I commit in the future. The blood of Christ covers all of those for me. But that does not mean that I continue to do what I want. It does not mean that I continue to sin in my life just because I know that that will be forgiven. There's something that is dramatically wrong with our lives. If we live day to day saying, well, we'll do what we want to do because we know Christ is going to forgive us. We'll, we'll go and do whatever we decide we will do because we will be forgiven. There's something that is wrong, inherently wrong in our lives. I mean, he follows up with this second question where he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He says, it does not make sense. Those of us who have died to sin to continue in that sin. And then this third question he asks in verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Notice he says basically, he says basically that death has led to life. Now, when I was working through this passage this last week, I could see so much irony. I mean, I mean to think... Death could bring life. That doesn't even make sense to some of us. I know, I know some of you, oh, Brother Roger, I've been in the church a long time. I understand. I've got that concept down. I, I'm so proud of you. But for many of us, it is hard to imagine that death and life could go hand in hand. One seems to be so tragic. One seems to be something to celebrate. And yet, Paul says, it is death that has led to life. The death of Christ himself, and then our death to sin. In a sense, what we have done is we have shared in Christ Jesus' 
death. He brings up here this word baptism or to be baptized. Verse 3, he had said, we were baptized into his death. Verse 4, he says, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So what he says is, is that this life we have, somehow it is emanated from his death. And in so many ways, we have now shared in the likeness of his death. He uses this term, baptized, to speak to our identity in Christ, particularly how we identify with his death. Now, the word baptize, in the New Testament, what does it mean? To be dunked. That's a good one. Exactly. To be dunked. Look, some of you have been Baptist all your life. You don't know what Baptist means, baptize? It means to be dunked. It means to be immersed. It means to be plunged. It means to be submerged. For those of you who are getting ready for Bible school this week, that's what it means. It means to be immersed. So sometimes when I look at the scripture, I actually think the translation should be more immersed than baptized. I was sharing with some folks in my office this week about baptism, and uh, I probably gave them more than they wanted to know. Do I ever do that to you? Just... You don't have to answer out loud. <laughs> this, word, this word baptism in the English, it basically refers to immersion. In the original language, it meant to immerse, plunge, dip. That's what it meant. So when our first English translations came out, uh, they were trying to translate that word. They were trying to translate it. And at the moment, at the time, not every church was, was immersing. And because of the leadership of England at that point, who had embraced other forms, they decided it might not be best to translate it. But they had to be faithful to the Word of God. So you know what they did? You know what they did? They took the Greek word, baptizo. That's the Greek word. Oh, some of you... Some of you can feel the heaviness of this message now, can't you? I quoted Greek. Old professor told me one time at Blue Mountain College, she said, never call a preacher that's had Greek or been to the Holy Land. You'll never hear about anything else but Greek and the Holy Land. That's about it. The word baptizo in the Greek, you, they took that word and they made a new English word. Baptize. They took the little O sound off, put the E on, baptize. We might call it a transliteration. They weren't, it wasn't translated, they just transliterated. That way they were faithful to the word and they didn't make anybody else mad. Now that sounds like a good Baptist, right? So sometimes the translation, I think, should be immersed. So listen to this. If you were to take the original language, in verse 3 it says... 
Do you not know that as many of us as were immersed, we were submerged, we were dunked, we were brought into the very person of who Jesus Christ is. See, I think that holds so much significance for us, even much more so than this idea of being baptized, that we have been immersed in Christ Jesus. And if we have done that, and we have come to know him in such a way that we were even immersed, identified in his death, he says, he asked, how would we go on sinning if we had experienced such identification with Christ. Now, I don't want to take away from baptism itself. I do not believe that chapter 6 is just speaking about water baptism. I think he is speaking about our immersion in Christ Jesus. But I will recognize that our physical baptism, our water baptism, does portray and represent what has happened inwardly in our relationship to Christ. I believe it is a good representation, a visible representation. So most of you have seen a baptism, perhaps, and you've seen one here, that an individual will be placed all the way under the water, and hopefully if I'm having a good day, they come back up out of the water. They go all the way under, and they're brought back up. Now, I tell people oftentimes we do that because we think that's the biblical way. Now, before some of you start throwing things or start writing me notes this week, I am not saying baptism is a part of salvation. Did you hear me say that this morning? Your baptism is not a part of your salvation. You come to Christ Jesus through faith and faith alone. Baptism, it is important in the sense that it demonstrates what's happened, that faith in your life. And what we do is... We immerse people because it's biblical, but also because it is the best picture, I think, to capture this message here. When somebody goes all the way under the water, it represents death, the death of Christ. And when they come up, the resurrection. What we basically say when we are baptized is that we believe that Jesus Christ died and that he rose again. And that we are accepting him as our Lord. It's very important that we confess that. But also, when we do this, what we're saying to ourselves, I always remind those who are being baptized, always remind them of this, that we are saying that we are dying in a sense. And that when we come up, we are coming up Alive in Christ. Now, it's not because of the baptismal waters. It's not through the baptism practice itself. It's just a confession that this is what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. That now we have identified with him, that we have identified with his death, and that we are identifying with his life. Because his death is what brought life. Death and life, they go together. Death brings forth the life that we have. So that's what we confess. We're alive because he paid the price. Because he died for us. And then we die 
in a sense. We share in the likeness as we die to sin itself. And notice what Paul said here. He said, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. What Paul says is basically that the death of Christ was sufficient enough to provide us with the life that we had. Perhaps I can portray it this way to you. You'll see certain times this image of the cross. In certain religious traditions, that cross will have Jesus upon it. You've seen those before. What is the difference between the idea of the cross here and the idea of the cross with Jesus upon it? Well, in that religious tradition, basically what they say is that Christ, in a sense, continues to provide the sacrifice. He continues to die. Like when they take of their Lord's Supper equivalent. When they take of it, they take, and each time they take of the Lord's Supper, it is the idea that he is being re-crucified again for us. Go read. Study it just a little bit. It's the idea that he is being crucified once again. And you must continue to take these things in order to maintain your salvation. Those of us who usually will take around a cross that doesn't have Jesus on it, what we believe, he did it once and for all. He's not having to die over and over again. He's not having to be re-crucified. The Jesus that we serve, the Jesus that we serve died once and for all on the cross. And my friends, that was enough. He paid the ultimate price. He paid the full price. And this is what Paul says. Paul says he died once for all. He doesn't have to die anymore. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ today, he lives And he demonstrates that life through us. See, that death, that once and for all sufficient death that he died has given us life. The understanding behind that is that we were dead before we experienced life. So those of us those of us that can remember back before our salvation, we recognize that we were dead. And that if you have not accepted Christ Jesus, there's a sense that you're a walking corpse. You don't know true life. A seminary professor took his students out one day, took a field trip, Seminary professor took these students right into a cemetery. Now, how exciting is that? To think that you're getting ready for this big field trip. I mean, come on, field trip. Hopefully, this will include a a stop by Starbucks or Dairy Queen or something like that. 
you take us to the cemetery. A seminary professor used to take his students to the cemetery and he would tell them, look at these graves. And he would say, now I want you to bring these people alive. I hate to tell you, but a lot of them realized they were about fell out of seminary. They were beginning to try to think of other ways that they could make a living. They also began thinking that this professor must totally, he must be totally in doctrinal error for them to do. He said, do whatever it takes. Whatever you think will bring them alive. Just do it. When they recognized their own inadequacies, how they recognized they could not do that, the professor then pointed out to them that every week, every week, they would preach and they would teach and there would be those individuals who were there that were spiritually dead. And that they could not do it on their own. They could not just speak life in... But rather, as they spoke the word of God, as they shared the gospel of Christ, somehow through that, each week, the Holy Spirit of God could work in their lives and bring them to life. Do you recognize that every day we walk around and there are dead people right beside us? They are spiritually dead. They need the life of Christ. And you and I, we can't do it on our own. We can't breathe life into them. But my friends, as we share the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, when we tell them that he died a sacrificial once and for all death for them and that he rose again, they can come to life. No wonder. No wonder. Jesus gave us this description of the angels celebrating in heaven itself over that one which comes to life in Christ. Those who were dead, but now they are alive. You see, death issued forth life. His death, our death to sin, through him, sharing with him, has given us life. And life? Well, life has led us to service. It's led us to serve Him and to be the people that He has called us to be. Notice in verse 11, He says, Likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said, you reckon yourself, you think of yourself, you recognize yourself that now you are dead to sin, but you are alive in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What Paul basically says is that the death of Christ, his work, has not only removed the penalty of sin from us, 
But the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has removed the power of sin from us. I'm not saying to you that we aren't still tempted. I'm not saying to you that we don't have real issues in our lives and difficulties that we face. But listen to what he says. As before, when we were dead to our sins and we could not resist, in a sense, so many times, now the Holy Spirit, God himself, has given us the strength to overcome sin. To overcome it. And to live a different type of life. When God brought life into us, things should be different. That's what he says. There should be righteousness. There should be fruit. We should be seeking him and serving him. Notice in verse 15 again, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. He asks this, this question again. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What he says is that that life that you now have, well, it leads to service. To serving him. Being obedient. Again, this is ironic for me. To think of life and service or life and let's use the language that he uses here life in slavery that doesn't sound like life to say that somehow now we have a master doesn't sound appropriate in my ears until I come back and recognize once again the truth of the scripture and that is through my allegiance through my commitment to him as my one and only Lord. Only then do I find true life. All of us in this place, all of us in this place have a master. Something or someone that tells us what to do. All of us do in some way. All of us allow certain things to dictate our attitudes and our actions. Maybe people, maybe family members. Hey, it may be your job. It may be in the workplace. It may be a hobby. Something you enjoy to do. There's nothing wrong with those things. Unless 
They dictate to you your life and what you are called to do. Jesus reminded us there cannot be two masters. He says basically what will end up happening is you'll love one and you'll hate the other. Right? That's what he says. And that is the reason we come to faith and recognize who he is. We recognize that he must be our boss. Remember what I said last week? No, you don't. You ain't got a clue. The earliest confession of the church was Jesus is Lord. What is that one confession that earliest believers had to state? They had to stand and they had to state, we believe Jesus is Lord. Now, it had all kinds of meanings behind that, divine, the divine nature of Jesus, certainly who Christ himself was. But it was an acknowledgement not only of who he was, but it was an acknowledgement of how that individual was committing his life, devoting his or her life, to Christ. This week, we have a great opportunity during Bible school to share the gospel with our children here, many who have heard it before, but hopefully we'll hear it in power again this week. I ask our Wednesday night crowd to pray specifically for the children here that are ready that the Holy Spirit is dealing with. See, I have this conviction that you cannot be saved unless the Holy Spirit has shown you who you are in your sin. And I think that must take place in that child or children's lives this week for them to come and be saved. But one of the things I tell them oftentimes when they come, especially children, is I'm trying to, trying to describe the lordship of Christ in their lives. I say to them, you know, we admit, we believe, we confess that Jesus is Lord. Quite simply, it means this. Jesus is boss. He is God. He tells us what to do. Now, he's, he's not a great tyrant. I'm not saying that. But he is God. And when he, we come to him and we experience life, we hear what he says. And we follow him. And that's what Paul says here. You don't continue on in sin just because you get more grace. You recognize you've gotten grace and you want to serve him all that you can. Because he did something in your life you could not have done on your own. He gave you the abundant life that you so desperately needed. And now, because we have given been given life, we act like we're alive. And we live for Him. For non-believers, again, it doesn't make much sense. How can you come and commit your life to, to God and, and say that you have freedom and that you have life and that you have sir? For us as believers, how could we not recognize the freedom and the life that has been given to us even as we have committed ourselves to serve Him. We are 
alive. I pray that when we go out tomorrow, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that people around us, well, people around us will know we have life. And why do we have it? Because of Christ Jesus our Lord. That one which died for us, gave himself for us willingly, and rose again. We have life. And that life now is transformed into service itself as we obey him and follow him in all that we are. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you for that life. Father, for that life that you alone have given. I pray, Lord, that today you would help us to celebrate that to recognize it. Father, for those who have never come and accepted you as Lord and Savior, may this be the day. May they enter into a new life in you. And God, for those of us in this place, may we never forget the grace. May we never forget the life. And may we never take it for granted. But live each day to the fullest in service of you. Lord, we love you this day. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you have done. And we pray now you would speak to us during this moment of invitation. Help us as we obey you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.